0: Okay, if you take your seats, please. Um, my name is Carolyn Baum. I'm a columnist with Bloomberg News, uh, a Cato sponsor. They don't know that at work, but anyway, that's what I am. Um, I'd like to welcome you to our panel today uh, Fed Policy and the Future of the Dollar. Actually, I'm heartened to see those terms juxtaposed uh, in, in the same topic because. Based on what I read, one would tend to think that the Treasury runs dollar policy. I mean, isn't the Treasury the one with a strong dollar policy? I like to say that running the mint and owning a printing press are not the same thing. (laughs) Now, the dollar is very much in the news right now. President Obama going to Asia and having to listen to uh, complaints from the Chinese. And uh, Bill Poole, whose paper I will be summarizing, has a perfect, albeit undiplomatic, uh, response to that. If China's unhappy about the dollar won exchange rate, tough luck. Um, that reminds me of Nixon's Treasury Secretary John Connolly back in 1971 when he, uh, taunted our European allies by saying, it may be our currency, but it's your problem. <laughs> okay. Um, as I said, the bad news is Bill Poole could not be here today uh, the good news is I will be summarizing and I mean summarizing his paper quite succinctly, and uh, we will should make up some time and have some extra time for Q and a okay uh, bill 's paper is titled "Is benign Dollar Policy wise You should have it in your your packets." Um, as I said, he starts out by saying officially the u s has a strong dollar policy. What it really is is a benign dollar policy. It's very unlikely the U.S. will take any action to affect the dollar uh, unless unless there are macroeconomic reasons for it. Um, He also talks about the focus on the weakness in the dollar and that by some short-term measures it's quite weak. But if you look at a uh, broad measure index, uh, it is... um, Uh, it it is not that weak. Um, He also talks a little bit about uh, the dollars, the dollars fall not being uh, a a symptom or a sign of rising inflation. Of course, I think the Austrians would probably disagree. But um, and the increase in the dollar price of gold, he says, is just the opposite side of the coin. Uh, one reason not to be concerned about the fall in the U.S. dollar is that measures of inflation expectations, whether you look at long-term interest rates, the spread between nominal and uh, inflation index bonds, uh, or even growth in the broad money aggregates, or, or MZM, uh, which is flat along with bank credit, Uh, there isn't much sign that this weak dollar is leading to an increase in inflation expectations. Uh, In sum, uh, dollar depreciation this year is not clear evidence of rising inflation concern in the market. He interprets this year's dollar depreciation as just another inexplicable short-run fluctuation like so many in the past. Now, the question for him is, should the Fed do something about dollar depreciation? Um, The Fed, as we know, has one policy tool, the federal funds rate. Uh, um, And uh, uh, he says that the Fed is not too expansionary at time, given the depressed state of the U.S. economy. He does, like earlier speakers, have concern about the Fed's uh, ability and willingness to, uh, uh, to take back its extraordinary monetary expansion in a timely manner. But uh, he reiterated that uh, M2, MZM, bank credit are not growing, um, suggesting that this hoarding of excess reserves right now is, is just that. Of course, it has the potential to become inflation. Um, Bill talks a little bit about the notion of the U.S. as the world's largest debtor nation. And he, I'm going to read this part uh, uh, to you. He said, um, this, the debtor nation rhetoric is inaccurate. Foreign claims on the United States are almost entirely denominated in dollars, while U.S. claims abroad are mostly denominated in foreign currencies or reflect direct imbre- investments abroad. These facts are extremely important for assessing the likelihood that the dollar depreciation could become cumulative. Uh, And for those reasons, he says, the dollar depreciation is a self-limiting process, provided U.S. inflation remains low. Dollar depreciation increases the value of U.S. dollar assets abroad. Um, Okay, then he gets to uh, uh, his, his key point here. The dollar-yuan exchange rate is not within the control of the United States, nor should the United States make any effort to achieve any particular value for that exchange rate. Under the flexible exchange rate regime the world enjoys, every country has the option of permitting its currency to appreciate against the dollar. It is not the responsibility of the United States to conduct its policies so that other countries are relieved of making their own choices on their macro policies and exchange rates. I want to repeat that. It is not the responsibility of the U.S. to conduct its policies so that other countries are relieved of making their own choices on their macro policies and exchange rates. Um, Okay. That... uh, that does it for, for Bill. Uh, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Bennett McCallum. Uh, he is the H.J. H- Heinz Professor of Economics in the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University. He is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, uh, consult, has been a consultant to the Federal Reserve Board and Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, has written extensively in the field of monetary economics. Bennett.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I would like to begin by saying that, that uh, I, I, like many others here, have been extremely disappointed, Um, in fact, the word appalled uh, sort of springs to mind, by developments involving the uh, Federal Reserve over the past two years. Now, I I think it was appropriate that the Fed would respond with expansionary monetary policy in the face of of a major macroeconomic turndown, which it did, but it did not have to do so by operations that uh, represented credit policy rather than monetary policy, uh, and thereby amounted effectively to unauthorized fiscal policy. Uh, By engaging in operations of this type on on such a large scale, the Fed's uh, actions are very likely to to uh, have uh, subsequent detrimental effects on its independence and, and on its resulting ability to uh, pursue its principal objective or what should be its principal objective, namely price level stability. Uh, furthermore, the Fed has not been moving quickly, uh, if at all, to, to uh, explain and correct Uh, this situation. and All in all, uh, the recent experience has had the effect of moving the Fed away from the type of policy behavior that the academic literature has been promoting over the past 15 years, namely an activist but rule-based monetary stabilization policy that, that emphasizes the goal of price level stability. In saying this, I... I do recognize that the term uh, inflation targeting has been gradually corrupted so as to, uh, so that some people use it in ways that would permit uh, ec- excessive aspects of fine-tuning with, with regard to output and employment. But by and large, I think that the academic literature has been mostly constructive uh, over, this, over this, these periods, and that the recent uh, actions have tended uh, to discredit uh, a literature that doesn't need to be, that should not be discredited by and large. Okay. Well, the topic for this panel uh, asks us to think think about the connection between monetary policy and international exchange rates. Now, in in, in previous writings, I, I have argued that monetary policy and exchange rate policy are so intimately linked that they should be considered uh, a, as one. And 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 it's really it seems to me an unfortunate anachronism that official exchange rate responsibility is assigned to the Treasury or Finance Ministry. Uh, in many economies, including the United States and Japan, and even to a very small extent, the European Union. But uh, continuing in that, in that vein, the uh, topic of the panel in turn asks us to uh, contemplate other types of monetary regimes, that is, arrangements other than uh, fiat money managed by a central bank, in a setting with uh, floating exchange rates. So trying to think uh, more broadly, it seems to me that there are three main alternatives that need, uh, that need in principle, to, d- to be discussed. The first of these is the gold standard, or some commodity standard, which is analytically similar. Now, with respect to this, my position is as much the same as that that was taken by Milton Friedman. Um, One way that I have of thinking about it begins with the assumption that such an arrangement, well, just the assumption, the presumption that such an arrangement would in practice be one in which the uh, National Monetary Authority stands ready to exchange gold at a fixed rate in both directions for the principal paper medium of exchange. Uh, This fixed price is supposed to be maintained indefinitely. But if the monetary authority has the capability of adjusting the price, then there isn't any permanent anchor for the price level, even if the paper currency is at each point in time convertible into gold. And the uh, population of the United States, like that of other countries, seems to me to be full of businessmen, congressmen, union leaders, nonprofit organizations, voters, television commentators, and miscellaneous individuals who uh, will be, would be constantly clamoring for the monetary authority to raise or lower the medium of exchange price of gold— or whatever is the standard commodity. An increase would uh, then possibly be stimulative, but only temporarily and would be followed uh, by price increases for goods in general, uh, inflation. Now, historically, the gold standard uh, did provide a a reasonable amount of price level stability over long spans of time. I think that is largely because the population then had a semi-religious belief that the gold price should not be varied but instead should be maintained basically forever. But today the same political forces that impinge upon the Fed to be inflationary under our present arrangements would work through the uh, alternative channel under the suggested gold or commodity money system. So Partly for this reason, uh, Friedman referred to such a system as a pseudo gold standard, as contrasted with what he called a real gold standard, and pointed out that it amounted to a price support system for gold producers rather than as a true monetary standard. Uh, now we we could of course, turn to the uh, other logical possibility of what he calls a real gold standard under which actual physical coins or bars of gold or whatever would serve as the primary hand-to-hand medium of exchange despite the costliness of uh, maintaining such a stock or uh, stored with uh, literal what he calls warehouse receipts. But uh, as Friedman says, there's this very strong tendency for such a system to evolve into one with um, fiduciary elements and eventually to degenerate, this this is his terminology, into a commodity currency in which the commodity is paper. Uh, This uh, process uh, would just be made easier by today's uh, digital storage capacity. Okay, so that's what I have to say about that. The, the second alternative that should be discussed at some, at some length is the provision of, of media of exchange by com- competing private suppliers. Um, but one of, one of our panelists, uh, Lawrence White, has uh, written extensively on that topic, so I'm going to move on uh, in large part because of my time constraint to the uh, third alternative. I see from seeing Larry Taper today that that's not quite what he's going to talk about. I can work it in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, th- third on my list is um, is this. Uh, I-, I have for many years been interested in, 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 in an intriguing but elusive proposal developed in a number of papers by Leland Yeager Uh several of them co-authored with uh, Robert Greenfield. The most startling aspect of the Greenfield-Jaeger analysis is the uh, contention that full price-level stability can be brought about by the appropriate designation of a broad-based consumption bundle as the unit of account in a monetary system in which there is little or no role Uh, for a governmentally sanctioned central bank. In this system, the the, um, unit of account, the unit in terms of which prices are quoted in most transactions, is based on a commodity bundle defined quite broadly so that movements in the uh, price of such a composite commodity bundle uh, represent Satisfa- represent satisfactorily movements in the general price level. Uh, with s- widespread agreement to, quote, prices of individual commodities in relation to any one such standard bundle would result in price level stability because any departure would represent an, arbitrary poss- an arbitrage possibility and uh, significant uh, opportunities for arbitrage are not frequently bypassed. Now, in uh, an article that I wrote in uh, 1985 that reviewed the first versions of the Greenfield-Jaeger proposal, along with related ones by Fisher Black, Eugene Fama, and Robert Hall, I objected to a few features of, of their analysis including in particular the suggestion that all that was needed to make the system provide full price stability was for the central bank or some authority to propose a non-coercive definition of the unit of account. In particular, no promise of convertibility and no open market sales or purchases by any authority would be needed. The uh, drive to obtain arbitrage profits would uh, suffice. This claim I did not accept, a a major part of my argument involving the distinction between the medium of account and the unit of account, i.e., the quantity of the medium that serves as the unit uh, in which prices are quoted. It it, it, it is only designation of the unit of account that is that is innocuous in, in the way that's needed for this uh, arrangement and comparable to the choice between feet and meters as units of length. The designation of a medium of account is, is not innocuous. It is comparable to the choice among length, height, weight, volume, surface, area, and so forth as measures of size. It matters whether a commodity standard system stabilizes the commodities commodity prices relative to a um, an ounce of sorry, it does not matter whether you stabilize prices relative to an ounce of gold or a grain of gold. That makes no difference whatsoever, but whether you stabilize them by uh, with reference to gold or to tin does make a difference, okay, well. Do you want me to stop in the middle of my? De- I'm going to go on for one and a half minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Despite this agreement, in a 2000 in another paper uh, that I wrote uh, a few just a few years ago, I sided with Greenfield and Jaeger in a dispute uh, over the feasibility of their system with respect to arrangements involving indirect convertibility. Um, and in the case that one that I judged to be somewhat more realistic, namely that uh, some authority was uh, seeking to provide medium of of, of account convertibility rather than only a definition by means of a redemption medium. In fact, I argued that a central bank could even adopt treasury bills as their redemption medium and then recognizing the connection between bill prices and interest rates specify a policy rule for adjustment of, say, the Treasury bill interest rate so as to maintain the medium of exchange price of commodity bundles over a span of years um, in in much the same way as as, uh, they suggested arbitrage would do it. And so uh, I went on to suggest that one could then, in principle, model this type of a system quantitatively and study it, much as in the academic literature to uh, see about uh, uh, details concerning speeds of uh, policy rate of adjustment that would be stabilizing, um, and and so forth. Now, so in my reading uh, for this conference and this uh, presentation, I found in a in a somewhat more recent article by Leland Yeager, in a 1992 issue of the Cato Journal, a passage that seems to imply that a version of the Greenfield-Jaeger system could be one in which a, a central bank type of entity or private bank, um, bank type competitors would be providing, and I quote here, two-way convertibility between uh, its money and whatever changeable amounts of some redemption medium was actually worth at current prices the bundle of, of goods and services signifying specifying the target price index. So with that sort of system, I believe the resulting system would be uh, totally viable and effective, and I think that the analysis of its properties could be made in the uh, fashion suggested in my, uh, in my previous paper. That This could be done either for such a system managed by a central bank or such a system uh, put into place by uh, private competing uh, money issuers, Uh, But I I think that somewhere along the way, they have to be providing some form of convertibility, not just a definition to make it work. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bennett. Our next speaker is Lawrence White. Larry's Mercatus Professor of Economics at George Mason University, an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. He has written widely on free banking, and he blogs at divisionoflabor.com. That's the British spelling of labor, L-A-B-O-U-R.
2: Thank uh, I want to begin by agreeing with Ben McCallum that uh, the Fed has been venturing into fiscal policy, uh, that this is unauthorized, and that uh, really it's appalling. Uh, and in my talk, I want to go deeper into the reasons why it's appalling, <laughs> what's appalling about it. Uh, so let's sort of back up and take a long-run perspective on things. When economists think about uh, what works to raise living standards in the long run, they often prescribe that what a country should do is embrace the principle of the rule of law, and especially this is advice given to developing countries. What I want to suggest is that we should step back from the uh, heat of the moment, the heat generated by the meltdown, I guess. Uh, listen to our own advice, and apply it to our monetary institutions. So I think the principle of the rule of law uh, could guide us, could usefully guide us in resolving the situation we're still in uh, and help us avoid future crises. Now, the approach of the Federal Reserve uh, and Treasury officials during this crisis has been to consider every possible remedy but applying the rule of law. Uh, Of course, I exaggerate a little bit. There have been some... Regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents who've protested uh, the unruly expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, but they're kind of voices in the wilderness. If we look at the uh, top deciders, as uh, President Bush called them, uh, we can quote Ben Bernanke, who uh, in a strategy meeting early in the crisis, as reported by the New York Times, uh, made the following declaration, there are no atheists in foxholes and there are no ideologues in financial crises. Uh, Meanwhile, over at the U.S. Treasury, a reporter asked uh, Neil Kashkari, who was the official in charge of administering the bailout, uh, how was the Treasury going to spend the 700-some billion in bailout money that Congress had given them with very little instruction? And Kashkari said, in effect, anything goes, nothing's off the table. Uh, Here's what the news account said, quote, we are looking at everything, he said, we are trying to figure out what will provide the most benefit to the financial system, unquote. Well, if we unpack what Bernanke and Kashkari were saying, it goes something like this. Uh, When we in authority decide that it's time to be pragmatic, then we can do whatever we want. There are no durable principles. There are no constitutional constraints. There are no statutory constraints that limit what we can do once we declare an emergency. Uh, We want to avoid a deeper crisis, and that authorizes us to make things up as we go along. We can do whatever seems expedient at any given moment. Now those kinds of sentiments uh, are not surprising from people who are held responsible for managing the health of the economy, uh, which by the way is kind of a ridiculous assignment for any government to give, uh, a ridiculous assignment to accept, (laughs) and a ridiculous assignment for the rest of us to uh, take seriously. But someone in that position understandably wants to be seen as, uh, wants to avoid being seen, sorry, as doing too little uh, to save the economy. And had Ben Bernanke stood on constitutional principle uh, and said, well, the Fed's authority doesn't extend uh, to intervene in every way, uh, he probably would not have been reappointed uh, as chairman of the Fed. Somebody more flexible would have been appointed in his place. So that's not surprising. But what is surprising and disappointing to me uh, is how many commentators who are ostensibly in favor of free markets, ostensibly in favor of constitutionally limited government, have echoed this anything-goes sentiment. Uh, So bear with me now as I take a short detour into uh, jurisprudence (laughs) to try to unpack this notion of the rule of law and its implications. Uh, There aren't many references to the rule of law in discussions of Federal Reserve policy. Uh, So what does it mean? Well, it has lots of dimensions, but I think at its core is the principle uh, of non-discretionary governance in contrast to the arbitrary or discretionary rule of those people who are currently in positions of authority. So as shorthand, we either have the rule of law or we have rule by authorities. Uh, In the old days, some writers used to say rule of law or rule of men, but they were sexist pigs. Under the rule of law, so it's authorities. Under the rule of law, government agencies do nothing but faithfully enforce the statutes that are already on the books. Under the rule of authorities, they make things up, make up new decrees decrees as they go along. They forego to enforce statutes that are already on the books. There's a very useful discussion of the rule of law uh, in F.A. Hayek's classic work, The Road to Serfdom. Since we're in the Hayek Auditorium, I'm going to work him into my talk whenever possible. Um, Hayek says there's a basic contrast between, quote, a country under arbitrary government, unquote, and a country that observes, quote, the great principle known as the rule of law. And then he goes on to explain what that means. Stripped of all technicalities, this means that government in its actions is bound by rules fixed and announced beforehand, rules which make it possible to foresee with fair certainty how the authority will use its coercive powers in given circumstances and to plan one's individual affairs on the basis of this knowledge, close quote. Uh, Sounds reasonable. This concept, the rule of law, has deep historic roots. We can trace it back to David Hume. Uh, Hume, in his History of England, written two centuries before Hayek, uh, acknowledged, look, it's not always convenient to forego ad hoc measures. Uh, what he wrote was some conveniences ar- inconveniences arise from the maxim of adhering strictly to law. But he said the lesson of history is that in the long run we're better off if we do strictly adhere to the rule of law. In his words, quote, it has been found that the advantages so much overbalance, unquote, the inconveniences, that we should salute our ancestors who insisted on this principle. Uh, It can be traced further back to Plato, uh, not Plato of the Republic, which is 100% evil, but Plato of a dialogue entitled Laws, uh, in which uh, a character called the Athenian stranger says, a city-state will, a city state will enjoy safety and the other benefits of the gods only where, quote, the law is despot over the rulers and the rulers are slaves of the law. So in other words, government officials are to be the servants and not the masters uh, of the city, of the society. Right, so the rule of law is important because it allows people to plan. It therefore allows society to combine freedom with a thriving economic order. So... What does all this have to do with avoiding and resolving financial crises? Well, the rule of law doesn't prevail in our current monetary uh, and financial system. We don't have, in Hayek's words, quote, government in all its actions bound by rules fixed and announced beforehand, certainly not when financial markets are hanging on every word of, the Fed's, uh, of, of speeches by Fed officials trying to guess what the future policy actions are going to be. So instead, we have central bankers who are discretionary rulers over the economy's monetary and financial institutions. So anyone who defends the rule of law as an abstract principle uh, ought to decry the rule of central bankers. Central bankers today are not slaves of the law, but they exercise very wide discretion. Uh, We should find this troubling, even appalling. Uh, Discretion doesn't give us better results, so it can't even be defended on pragmatic grounds. We've all learned that The lack of pre-commitment in monetary policy can give us, uh, despite the best of intentions, unwanted inflation. We should also recognize that lack of pre-commitment in monetary policy, despite the best of intentions, can give us financial bubbles, uh, asset price bubbles. When Alan Greenspan held interest rates so low that the real interest rate uh, was negative for two and a half years, he was exercising discretion. He was not faithfully executing any any, uh, rule on the books. And, of course, under no reasonable rule would he have acted that way. Uh, in the interest of time, let me skip a little ahead a little. Uh, so in the p- current crisis, let me enumerate some of the ways in which uh, the rule of law has been violated uh, by the Bernanke Fed. And I normally wouldn't personalize the Fed, but <laughs> here we are talking about the rule of authorities rather than the rule of law. Uh, First, the Fed uh, created new lending facilities for lending to non-banks, that was new, buying illiquid or toxic assets, that was new, Uh, and today it even dedicates the majority of the Fed's portfolio uh, to those kinds of facilities. Uh, uh, George Malone talked about the transformation of the Fed's balance sheet this morning. Uh, Secondly, the Fed set up a special subsidiary called Maiden Lane LLC, uh, to sweeten an acquisition deal to protect the bondholders of the investment house, Bear Stearns. It did not do the same for the investment house, Lehman Brothers. It has set up other subsidiaries, Maiden Lane 2, Maiden Lane 3, uh, to buy and hold bad assets from AIG, uh, something it hasn't done before. Uh, according to many ac- Third, according to many accounts, the Fed jammed the investment house, Merrill Lynch, down the throat of Bank of America, the Fed decided that somebody needed to buy Merrill Lynch. Bank of America initially uh, was interested. Then the CEO of Bank of America hesitated when he found out uh, just how bad Merrill's assets were, how many losses they had coming. Rather than allow B of A to back out, as a potential acquirer normally does, has the right to do, uh, Paulson and Bernanke reportedly pressured the CEO of Bank of America uh, into accepting the deal um, and threatened, well, according to this one reporter, relying on no legal authority whatsoever, they threatened to uh, remove the board and management of Bank of America if they refused to go forward with the deal. So those are just three examples. Um, when we allow an executive agency the discretion to bestow benefits on particular firms like this and burdens on other firms like this, it's a recipe for partiality. Uh, I leave it to you to scrutinize which firms the Fed has favored and which it has disfavored, Uh, but clearly it's not been completely even-handed. There's even a serious question uh, as to whether all the Fed's actions have been legal under the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, I'll skip over that, but the, the person who I think is the biggest authority on this, which is Walker Todd, formerly an attorney on the staffs of the Federal Reserve Banks of New York and Cleveland, Has uh, made the following comment rather dryly, quote, much less of the Fed's recent lending is based on clear statutory authority than one might prefer if one cared about the rule of law (laughs) 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 and the potential for tyrannical government, unquote. Uh, The Fed is relying very heavily on Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act as revised in 19 as amended in 1991. But I think there, in order to find authority for what the Fed has been doing, you have to read between the lines and even off the edge of the page. Uh, the Fed is exercising discretion it was never given. Certainly, it's violating the rule of law by taking this emergency clause, 13.3, and turning it into a rationale for uh, n- not just rare actions, but actions that now dominate the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, now, even if the statute law permits this, I doubt it, but even if it does, It's not consistent with the rule of law to give an agency to do just anything it wants to do. Uh, Then we have arbitrary rule of central bankers. Uh, So what's the alternative? Well, follow the law of bankruptcy when it comes to resolving insolvent financial firms. It might be nice to enact a prepackaged bankruptcy law so that we can more swiftly resolve future failures of non-bank financial institutions. But before we have such a law, follow the law we do have on the books. Uh, skipping ahead to the end since uh, Bennett McCallum referred to my uh, work on alternatives to central banking (laughs) can there be a a central bank that is consistent with the rule of law Uh, the way I read the historical record is and this may surprise you yes uh, but here's the catch uh, only if it's a privately owned central bank (laughs) such as a commercial bank clearinghouse association the sort that prevailed before the federal reserve act Uh, So if we're really concerned about the rule of law, we need to think about alternatives to central banking. Uh, Like Ben, I discuss various alternatives. The one I favor is uh, free banking on a gold or silver standard. That enables us to solve the problem of discretionary central banking by abolishing central banks, which I think is the most thorough uh, solution to the
0: problem. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Our final speaker is Thomas Humphrey. Spent 35 years as a research economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, writing extensively uh, journal articles, books on monetary policy history.
3: Jim told me. This. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Honored to be here. Um, a recent piece in the Financial Times online claimed that the, that the Fed has, quote, used its balance sheet to be a classical lender of last resort in the current crisis. When I read that, I thought to myself, really? The Fed, a classical thornton Badgett lender of last resort, the kind that protects the money stock from contraction in the face of bank runs and that expands the money stock to offset panic-induced falls in velocity – the kind of a lender of last resort that lends only to solvent, creditworthy firms, that demands good collateral, uh, and that charges a penalty rate to prevent moral hazard. The kind that avoids bailouts and the channeling of aid to favored borrowers and instead prefers the market allocate the aid instead. Uh, the kind of lender of last resort that pre-commits to make liquidity freely available in all future panics. The Fed, a classical lender of last resort? No, I don't think so. Uh, how has the Fed policy deviated from the classical model? Well, first, the Fed now emphasizes credit over money, bank loans over uh, bank deposits. The Fed's stated concern is not to protect the money stock from contraction or to increase it to offset falls in velocity. Rather, the Fed's concern is to free up credit markets, lower interest rate spreads, and get banks lending again. Indeed, early in the crisis, the Fed sterilized its last resort loans so that they would have no effect whatsoever on the money stock. Later, cumulative lending became too large to sterilize. Even so, the Fed said that the resulting doubling of the monetary base was not meant to be a program of quantitative easing. Instead, it was an incidental side effect of a credit-easing policy designed to shrink credit spreads and to free up frozen credit markets. Evidently, the Fed thinks that bank credit, or lending, is the crucial variable that drives spending. Classicals, on the other hand, thought that money was that crucial variable. Empirical evidence is on the classical side. Uh, That evidence shows that keeping money supply equal to money demand Uh, can sustain economic activity even when banks and bank lending are in a dysfunctional state. Second, the Fed has has accepted junk collateral, not the good security stressed by classicals. If this junk turns out to be near worthless and has to be written off, the Fed is going to be in a bind. It will have less seniorage revenue to remit to the Treasury. This forces the Treasury then to raise taxes or lower expenditures or borrow more. By influencing the Treasury's tax, expenditure, and borrowing decisions, the Fed becomes a fiscal policymaker when it was designed to operate as a purely monetary agency. Also, should the Fed lose heavily on its collateral, It will have assets of insufficient value to sell to mop up excess liquidity when the crisis ends. To obtain the necessary assets, it may then have to ask the Treasury to issue it additional T-bills in exchange for an equity stake or a new deposit with the Fed. Or it may buy additional assets to replace the worthless ones. The first option costs the Fed its independence. The second is inflationary. Third, the Fed has not charged penalty rates on its loan as Walter Bajet recommended. Charging a 100 basis point premium later lowered to 25 basis points over a near zero Fed funds rate is hardly a penalty rate in bajet's sense of the term. Likewise, charging AIG rates ranging from 8.5 to 12 percent doesn't constitute the imposition of penalty rates because uh, junk bonds of equivalent risk and quality of AIG assets were yielding in in excess of 17% at the time. In charging below-market interest rates to particular borrowers, the Fed abandons the classical ideal of impartiality in lending and instead channels aid to favored borrowers. Fourth, the Fed ignored the classical advice never to accommodate unsound borrowers when it bailed out insolvent Citigroup and AIG. The Fed believed that these firms were too interconnected to fail. They were the hub of a vast network of counterparty credit interrelationships. Their failure would have brought collapse to the entire financial system. Badgett, however, had already addressed the problem of system fragility. He wrote that interconnectedness and its associated danger of systemic failure are not good reasons to bail out insolvent firms. Modern bailout critics go bash one step further. Better to let insolvent firms fail and go through receivership, recapitalization, and reorganization. Nothing real is lost. The resources will pass to new owners who will use them more efficiently and less uh, riskily. Uh, the, Fed said, the truth is that the Fed set a dangerous precedent in bailing out Citigroup and AIG. Those bailouts produce incentives for other firms to create systemic risks in pursuit of profits, knowing that they too may be bailed out when their risks go sour. It opens the door for other baneful possibilities of a political nature. What's to prevent a future president and Congress citing the Fed's precedent from pushing the bailout remedy for other systemic crises? Imagine the Fed being pressured to resolve the Social Security, Medicare, and uh, current uh, string of uh, deficits going into the indefinite future, and other entitlement crises by monetizing the vast unfunded liabilities of those programs. The result would be a hyperinflation that would rival the uh, Weimar hyperinflation of 1923. Fifth, the Fed violates the classical admonition that emergency loans should last for a few days only. Badget said something like four or five days. It prolongs the deadline for loan repayment, 28 and 84 days for TAF loans, even longer deadlines for other loans. Sixth, and this is very important, the Fed violates the classical prescription of announced pre-commitment. The Fed does not promise to make last resort aid available in future crises. It has never articulated a consistent well-defined LLR policy, lender of last resort, much less a pre-announced one. It has never stated what criteria or indicators would trigger its decision to aid borrowers. It has never promised that the same criteria or indicators will trigger its loan decisions in future crises so that people can form stabilizing expectations. The result is that the public is uncertain about what the Fed will do. Failure to pre-commit is counterproductive to quelling panics. Seventh, the the Fed has failed to articulate a convincing exit strategy, a strategy to eradicate monetary overhang at the end of the crisis. By contrast, the Classicals' classical's exit strategy was quite simple and clear. No action was required when credible pre-commitment stopped panics and runs before they even began. In other cases, the costly penalty rate would uh, ensure the elimination of excess money by spurring borrowers to repay their last resort loans with notes and deposits that the central bank would then uh, impound and retire from circulation. In the, in the uh, case in which borrowers fail to repay their loans, the central bank could still wipe up and wipe out the, the monetary excess through open market sales of the collateral securing the loans. Uh, These outcomes, however, are largely unavailable to the Fed, given its failure to pre-commit to charge high penalty rates and to hold collateral whose true market value equals that of its loans. True, the Fed has new tools designed to mop up or immobilize excess reserves when the recovery begins. These include raising interest rates paid on excess reserves so that banks will hoard those excess reserves, instead of lending them out in the form of newly created deposits. Uh, The the new tools also include selling long-term securities of various kinds. But the Fed has not announced the conditions or precise indicators that would trigger application of these tools. The result is to create uncertainty and to fan fears that the tools will be applied either too late to prevent inflation or too early, thereby aborting the recovery. Few doubt the Fed's technical ability to apply these new tools. Instead, doubt arises about the Fed's political will and courage to do so. How unpopular will it be, for example, to pay bankers competitive interest rates to hold excess reserves idle at a time when everybody else is complaining of monetary tightness? Likewise, can the Fed withstand the howls of politicians for whom no interest rate can be too low when its security sales raise long-term rates and threaten to abort to throttle the recovery. A classical rule-bound program that left nothing to the Fed's discretion might help avoid these problems. No, the Fed is not a classical lender of last resort, and it's too bad that it hasn't even tried because uh, the, the idea of the lender of last resort has worked elsewhere. The classical medicine, for example, helped the Bank of England quail bank panics for more than 140 years. True, the Fed's bailouts and subsidy rates may have alleviated the current crisis, but by fostering moral hazard, they may have planted the seeds of worse systemic crises later on.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, it almost feels as if we should have someone from the Fed to counter these gentlemen. It's pretty clear where they stand. We have about 15 minutes for a Q&A before we break for lunch. Gentlemen over there, you want to wait for the microphone? Identify yourself, please.
4: Yes, uh, my name is Pete Kurovsky, Petropolitan from Venezuela. Uh, a question to Mr. White on the rule of law. Is there uh, Possibilities of a class action of those that are have been rated BB plus vis-a-vis their AAA rating in terms of having been discriminated by regulatory authorities with no basis whatsoever in any type of legislation. And the second question would be to the to the to the to the, to the topic of the dollar. And this we have recently seen a country like Brazil imposing some type of taxes uh, for on, the, on the dollars coming on the reales coming in in order to lower. Is there room in the US for a tax for a safe haven tax to be imposed by the Fed to try to achieve the same type of, of, of goals in terms that the government does not receive funding too lo- at too low a rate? that there's some intermediate charging attacks on a safe haven?
2: Do I need to push this button? Do you... um, is is the this on? Line on? I think it's on? Okay. Um, the first question was about the rating agencies. Uh, technically, the rating agencies are private institutions, although we've turned them into quasi-public institutions by only having three that are authorized by the SEC. Still, I don't think uh, a class action suit would be uh, received by the court. Uh, well, the the uh, but the bond ratings are given by these rating agencies. Um, well, I don't know. Good luck with that. <laughs> and your question about. Uh, Taxes on uh, safe havens, I didn't quite understand, but I guess I I need to refer you to a tax attorney, which I am not.
0: (laughs) Gentleman back there, white shirt.
5: I've been having a problem when I I analyze how we got to where we are. I understand uh, the CRA... I understand Freddie and fanny and and now we 're talking about something back by law uh, those three instances there. I understand the packaging of the loans uh, the low quality I understand uh, what the investment banks and the commercial banks did with uh, those packages, and when they couldn 't sell them to somebody they They had the carry difference in the yield versus uh, zero cost of money during that time. Uh, They had uh, highly motivated bond salespeople uh, because the commissions uh, uh, were were high and a lot of people made a lot of money on it. Um, I watched what the Fed did. I watched what happened uh, to AIG. Uh, I looked at uh, the credit default swap situation. Uh, I looked at the international impact of our financial movements here uh, by those particular entities and what may happen throughout the rest of the world. And when I finished looking at that, my problem is I don't like what we did, and I'm excluding the auto companies here. I think that was a horrendous uh, move that – Uh, which was a political move purely in my view. But I understand where we are. I understand what happened. I understand that for the most part we're not happy with how it was handled. But I can't get my arms around how we could have handled it differently when it struck us for the most part very quickly. We can say, well, we should have known what's going on uh, uh, sooner. Uh, But nonetheless... It hit us. It hit us quickly. Do you have any suggestions as to how we may have reacted differently than we did? I'm talking about the Fed primarily and Treasury.
0: Okay. Thank you. Who uh,
5: just... Yeah, I mean, briefly, uh,
2: in the case of Bear Stearns, we would the Fed would not have cleansed their balance sheet by absorbing 30 billion in bad assets, right? Which rescued the uh, counterparties and creditors to Bear Stearns which made the Lehman failure all the much worse because after Bear Stearns was rescued Lehman actually leveraged up further because creditors were willing to lend them money cheaply because now they felt protected so that's the sort of thing we would not have done differently we would have done differently if we'd been committed to the rule of law Uh, to to resolving these cases as the law is written and and in an impartial way and letting the chips fall where they may. Uh, It would have been ugly, right? But we didn't avoid the ugliness by doing it. We made it worse.
3: Can you hear me on this thing? I Uh, I would also say that if the Fed had behaved as a classical lender of last resort – Namely, by at the start of the crisis by sudden by going into the market to say we are going to uh, to make liquidity freely available we 're going to put all that it needs to be out there but we 're going to leave it up do it by via, do it by open market operations, but we 're going to leave it up to the market participants to allocate the aid and if some banks fail, even big banks fail, so be it we 're going to make sure that the economy is not going to be starved for uh, for liquidity and uh, that uh, uh, I think that would have gone a long way to, to resolving the crisis. Act more like a classical lender of last resort than uh, than what what they did. But you know, I I got to admit, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Maybe I don't I don't really know for sure. But uh, it seems to me that my a case might be made for that.
1: One thing, one thing I would have to say in this regard is that is that good policy uh, comes from having arrangements in, in place that keep you from getting into crisis situations in the first place. And the speakers earlier this morning uh, did a very good job of, of discussing our housing market policies, for instance, uh, that simply loaded the dice so that we were what you need to do with with you need to have rules in place that keep you from getting into these bad situations, in which there sometimes is nothing that can be done to get you out of them.
0: Back there, blue shirt.
6: Thank you. My name is Arturo Porsecan. I'm with American University. Uh, the panel was titled the Fed Policy and the Future of the Dollar. And I think uh, that uh, we, you guys short shrifted the dollar, except for uh, uh, Bill Poole's comments. But uh, we don't have to necessarily talk about the future of the dollar. We can just reflect a little bit on the recent performance of the dollar uh, throughout you know, the past couple of years. And uh, would you uh, uh, agree with me that uh, uh, with all the ups and downs uh, of Fed policy during the past couple of years uh, – the dollar uh, seems to have, uh, uh, you know, appreciated, depreciated uh, this way, that way. I mean, what's what strikes me is uh, what 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 little relationship there seems to uh, have been between uh, Fed policy, which uh, obviously was massively expansionary as of late, and and the dollar's uh, swings. Uh, is that one of the observations uh, at the very least that we should make about recent performance? And then, if you want, talk about the future.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the historical record, in in broad outline, shows us that uh, currencies tend to return over time to the levels determined by their purchasing power parity. So that countries with higher inflation see their currencies uh, depreciate against the, the currencies of countries with lower inflation. But there are big swings around this trend, and the swings are hard to explain. Uh, but one thing that can explain a depreciation in advance of an inflation is the anticipation of future inflation, and that may be what we're seeing today. I mean, time will tell whether it's driven by that or something else. But that's why we need to be worried about the the recent fall in the in the price of the dollar in the exchange value of the dollar. Tom, you have
0: anything?
1: I agree completely.
2: Uh, back there. Either one. Uh, Russ Fuller, Fuller & Thaler, Asset Management. I'll uh, actually ask the question rather than make a statement.
0: <laughs>
5: uh,
2: with respect to the rule of law, specifically uh, the easiest one to think about is the Chrysler uh, bankruptcy. Do you think the Treasury and or the administration was consistent with the rule of law and the way it treated the uh, uh bondholders and a more complex question uh with respect to the as you talked to earlier uh the threat to remove the board of directors and so forth from Bank of America if they didn't take over Merrill Lynch uh no i don't think uh, either of those was consistent with the rule of law i mean i i need to know more about the uh situation in chrysler but i mean the intervention by the federal government uh into the case which should have been in bankruptcy court <laughs> or it tells you that arbitrary decisions were being made. Anyone
0: else? The front here I'm a little bit curious about the advocacy of some of the panelists about the reversion
2: to the classical gold standard. Uh I've seen some evidence that, especially during the Depression, it was extremely deflationary. And even if you put that aside, I wonder that even if we did revert to a gold standard, whether it would be effective since we would have to essentially convince other countries to go back to the gold standard as well. No, I agree with you that it's a problem that, or it's a consideration that the gold standard works better the more countries that are on it. And uh, I have a, a... Cato Policy Briefing, which is available online, in which I talk about the main objections to the gold standard, and and that I regard as the most troublesome. Um, but the, to look at the record of the uh, monetary system that prevailed between World War I and World War II uh, is not to look at the classical gold standard, and it's to look at a gold standard which was sort of half-hearted and being bungled by central banks. Uh, But I favor a kind of gold standard in which nobody has the power to manipulate it, uh, where the issue of money is decentralized and competitive rather than uh, put in the charge of a central bank which has the power to manipulate interest rates and thereby delay adjustment to uh, gold flows until a crisis uh, is required.
1: Well, I'm not an admirer of the gold standard, uh, frankly. Um, I think one can do significantly better than the gold standard, not that we've yet uh, <laughs> done much better. <laughs> but the uh, the gold standard does a good job of preventing really major inflations taking place and huge <laughs> changes of the price level over time. In fact, one of my favorite statistics that I like, like to quote to uh, young college students uh, is that the price level uh, in the United States was slightly lower in 1940 than it was in 1800, uh, which is sort of amazing. But nevertheless, I'm, I, so, so there's a good bit of long-run stability uh, provided by the system, as long as the population has this kind of mystical belief that uh, it should be maintained, which I, I think we could never recreate today. But even so, the historical record shows that that during the years in which the gold standard was working well, there was a lot of cyclical fluctu- fluctuations in terms of uh, price level over periods of like five or ten years, that there was a good bit more... Uh, fluctuation than we have seen in 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 recent times. In recent times we've seen something smooth like that. <laughs> but they used to it used to go like this. So I, I am no friend of the gold standard. Time for
0: one more question.
7: Uh back there. Isn't the problem with the with either the gold standard or a fixed exchange rate uh Fixed fix to the dollar or some, some other thing, including commodities. Isn't the problem that it doesn't allow for differing rates of productivity growth among countries so that inexorably adjustments have to be made periodically? The reason the Japanese yen has appreciated against the dollar over the in recent decades is because Japan's productivity was rising faster than the United States'. It didn't mean the United States was becoming less productive. It's just that other countries are, had had experiencing productivity growth rates higher than ours, so that they were able to put their products on the global market at lower prices, reflecting their increased productivity. Meaning the demand for their products would rise, putting upward pressure on the on their their for their currency, as in the case of of the Japanese yen. It seems to me that's the problem, a major problem with. Attempting to fix exchange rates over a long period of time.
1: Well, one thing—it's it, true that the um, that Japan and, and Germany, for instance, had uh, um, more rapid real growth over the the period that you're thinking of in the United States. But this was sort of from looked at from a starting point right at the end of World War II. Is the the statistics that I'm sure you're thinking about. Um, over a very long span of time, it is the case that uh, purchasing power parity holds up very well.
2: As Larry said. Yeah, I would answer that by saying that um, if one country has more rapid real growth than another country, it will come to own a larger share of the world's wealth. If money demand is normally behaved, it will come to own a larger share of the world's real money stock. Now, there are two ways that can happen. Either its currency appreciates, relative to other currencies, if you have floating exchange rates. If you have a a gold standard between that country and the rest of the world, it attracts a larger share of the world's gold. I don't see what the problem is. Whether there is inflation or deflation in the world as a whole will depend on how the stock of gold grows relative to world output. But that country will have a larger share of the world's gold. It will increase its money supply by gold inflows.
0: Uh, I want to thank the panel for their provocative comments. We're going to break for lunch now. And would, would you please be back at 1.15 for the next speaker? Thank you.